Better in Bucharest is a podcast about life experiences, leadership lessons, faith and hope. This podcast will show you that you don't have to compromise your values to achieve happiness. Today's podcast is with a friend of mine from the US, Steve Sessler. Steve was a sales vice president with Procter Gamble where he spent 36 years. Steve lived internationally for nine years and worked on several global businesses. He has been married to Judy for 39 years. They have five children and eight grandchildren. He loves playing golf. He loves to come to Romania and talk to students. Today he's going to speak about resilience in difficult times. Steve, welcome. It's an honor to have you today with us. Thank you, my friend. It is it is good to see you and it's good to be with you over technology. We start every episode with a personal question. And the question is, what was it like around your dinner family table when you were a kid? That's interesting. I was the oldest of six. I think we would be classified as the working poor. And by that, I mean, my dad always had a job. He was typically a high school teacher and he would coach uh, different sports, football, baseball, basketball. And so it wasn't like he was unemployed, but we never had any money. And so I remember when I think back to my dinner times at uh, our house, I remember we I was the oldest of six. And so I just felt like there was a lot of chaos a lot of uh, conflict. Uh, money was always really, really tight. I just remember stress <laughs> and arguments and fights. And uh, my mom and dad, uh, they kind of had a lot of conflict. A lot, I think, had to do with finances. Not a lot of food in the house. We never went hungry, but not a lot of food. And I remember going over to a friend's house once and opening the refrigerator and seeing the refrigerator was was full of food. And I came back and was telling my family how rich this other other family was because they had food in their refrigerator. So I, meals for me were tougher. You had a lot of challenges and conflicts in your childhood. Do you think you grew in your resilience because of this? I had, you know, it's interesting, Yanko. I hadn't really made a really firm connection between resilience, which we want to talk about today, and my childhood. But I actually think that you're you're wise, and even the question. I obviously our childhoods frame a lot about who we are as adults. You know, good things and bad things, but definitely have a huge impact. And so I I do think that in the resilience area, growing up with challenges and conflict and um, really having a desire to do better in life than maybe what my surroundings were dictating, that definitely would have had a big impact on resilience. It's funny, I I just a, a second ago, my grandson is spending his school day here at our house today. He's 10 and we were just talking about me growing up and he was asking me about the different jobs I had. And so from ages um, six, seven, eight, and nine, you know, I was constantly working and cutting grass or selling bubble gum that I would buy in bulk and then <laughs> break it down into smaller pieces and washing cars for money and just whatever I could do to, to get a few extra dollars. I definitely was doing that. But I think that my childhood would have had a pretty big impact on how I looked at challenges and being resilient and wanting to bounce back and keep going and not give up. I definitely think that had a big impact. When you look at your parents, do you see resilience in their lives? Well, I definitely saw resilience in my mom. I can vividly remember she was a registered nurse and so would sometimes 
work nights from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And my dad was getting a, a graduate degree. And my mother with, at the time, she would have had four children, four young children. So I want you to think about this, four young children working 11 to 7 at night. And she would have to take three different buses to get to her work. We lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and she worked in a town across the river in a different state. Took three different buses, working nights, coming home and taking care of four children. That's that's pretty resilient. <laughs> you got to be tough. <laughs> and so definitely I, I saw that from my, uh, from my mom. And my dad, he grew up in a very tough area of downtown Cincinnati. Very tough. You know, only first child to ever graduate from high school. And um, he ended up with, I think, something like 200 or 250 different hours in university and several degrees. And he was very proud of that. He died about a couple of years ago. I saw him facing really tough times. But to be honest, um, he stumbled. I would say he kept, he would get up and keep going. But I felt like I saw him stumble a lot. He would maybe have a good job. And then for whatever reason, leave the job and then would would kind of start back over and, and climb up. So I, I saw him continually push and strive, but probably never had, you know, great success. We live in challenging times. Many people lost their lives. Even more people lost their jobs. There's a lot of insecurity regarding the future. What are some of your thoughts on resilience? When I think of resilience, I kind of think of, of two different sides. One is it's you know the ability to to bounce back when you get crushed and pushed down and and pressed down you don't stay down you're able to bounce back but then i also think of the ability to thrive and to keep going and to do better and end up in a better spot so if someone is resilient it's just not that they didn't die in the process but they were eventually successful and they persevered and they're in a better spot. And as I think about over the last, I'm 63. So as I think about over the last, you know, several decades, I think of both personal and professional challenges that I face that require me to be resilient. And of course, those times you're, you don't go in saying, wow, this is going to be really hard. I better be resilient. You just, it, you, you just find yourself in that spot. But it's very interesting, and this probably doesn't come as a surprise, but those times that required the most resilience, as I look back now, those were my best assignments at PNG, my best projects. I've got a couple of things now in my life that I'm gonna that I, I need to be resilient. So it's not like now things are, are perfect. But I look back and just say, wow, I learned the most in those times. I grew the most. I probably contributed the most. And those were my like the best assignments. I had 19 different assignments over my 36-year career. And the best assignments were the, the hardest and required the most resilient. I didn't necessarily feel that way when I was going through the assignment. Just I can remember just sometimes just saying, is there enough oxygen in the room to breathe? They were that it was that challenging. But then you get through it and you look back and you say, Wow, that was really good. That was really good. So I do have a couple of principles that I want to share. I think the first principle is you've just got to keep moving. You've just got to put one step in front of the other and Oftentimes, since I know I surely have, is you do not see a solution in sight. You don't. The answer is not obvious. If it was, you would you would do it quickly. You do not know how you're going to get out of this situation that is ultimately requiring a lot of resilience. But you've just got to keep moving. You've got to take it day by day. You've got to just put one step in front of the other. You just simply can't 
quit. And Yanku, I'm, I'm thinking of situations that require you not to quit. So if it's your marriage or if it's a job, I'm not talking about a financial investment that in fact you could get out of that investment and invest in something else. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about these big challenges that require you to keep going. So I remember there's, I read, read a, a, a story about the Navy SEALs, which as you know, is this elite fighting force. Their training is famous. There's some really fun books to read about Navy SEAL training. And one of the things in Navy SEAL training is they've got this bell. And I, I don't know what percentages of the people that start the training finish. It's a, it's a small percentage. But at any one time, any one time, a, per, a Navy SEAL during the training can just say, you know what, I'm done. And they can go to the bell and they can ring the bell. But here's the interesting thing. The, the coaches and the leaders will sit down and talk with those guys and say, hey, you do not need to quit. We all have these times where we're, we don't think we can go and we all feel like quitting. You rung the bell. We invite you to stay and keep going in the training. And some of the people that ring the bell, they go back and they say, you know what? Okay, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep going. But here's the interesting thing. Every person that has rung the bell first time, they never finish because they've given themselves permission to not finish. That's for me, that's a huge lesson. I, I remember hearing a talk by this guy named Eric Weyenmayer. He became blind at age 13 or 14. He's a great athlete. He's a mountain climber. He's, he's climbed the highest peak in every continent, obviously including Mount Everest. So think about that. You're blind and you're climbing mountains. And he gave a talk at my company the talk he gave, there were probably only about 15 or 20 of us in the room. So it was a, you know, kind of a small environment. And so he gave a nice 20, 25 minute talk. And then he said, Hey, anybody have any questions? Well, I mean, I probably asked half the questions to this guy, <laughs> you know, but one, one time I just asked him, I said, so in your life, when you face these tough obstacles, like when you feel like giving up, what's in your brain? And he said, I just know there's got to be a way I cannot give up. And he kept saying, there's got to be a way. And that hit me so hard. I remember hearing this story where he was down in Chile and he, was, he, was, he had failed the previous year. He came back after another year's worth of training, but there ended up being a crevice and he and his partner had to jump over this crevice and kind of land in a certain way. And they had the, the clampons and the spikes and he had to land a certain way. If he landed wrong, he would slip, he would fall into this crevice and then it went under a glacier like a stream and he would die. And the story is like he sat there for two hours and talked to the guy and didn't know what to do. But he was so committed on <laughs> getting to the top of this mountain in Chile. Ultimately, he decided to take the risk and jump. He obviously made it. But it's like, I can't imagine, you know, and I don't know, I, as I've told that story, I've I, I think I've probably made the crevice far bigger than it really was, but it was big enough where he could, if he slipped, he was dead. But I think of Eric saying, there's, there's got to be a way that, you know, keep moving day by day, one step in front, never quit. So for me, that's the first point. The second point I want to mention is when you're in this situation where you've got this big challenge, you're overwhelmed, you need to be resilient. You not only kind of do the day-to-day -day stuff, you, you work on today's challenges, but you also, at the same time, you prepare for the future. You force yourself to carve out some time to think long-term. I remember in 1996, I, I, I was sent down to Argentina to be the sales director of Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. And P&G had just recently come into South America, our chief big competitor had been there for 80 years. We had bought some small companies and our market share in detergents, which was our big 
global brand. Our market share was about 8%. Their market share was 80%. They were 10 times bigger than we were. So that means they had 10 times more people, 10 times more money. Their relationships weren't went decades long. It was brutal. It was tough. We, as a company, there were days where it felt like we were in a heavyweight fight and they hit us with all their might and we were almost knocked out on our feet. This was Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, but there were just so many challenges when we went, we went down there. And I remember working on those day-to-day challenges. If a customer kicked you out or you had to make an important sale just to try to get the weekly goals or the monthly goals. But then at the same time, knowing full well that we had to do things different for the long term. And so we hired really, really smart, brand new university students. They weren't really going to help us too much in the next three or four months. But long term, having great people is how you win, right? I remember bringing down four expats, one from Puerto Rico, one from Mexico, two from the U.S., down to Argentina to help me. And part of their mission was to train these young university students. And so not put these new students into the current system, but we created a new training system so that in a really short period of time, these young folks were contributing. These expats were pouring all their brain into the local organization. You know, we changed policies that were right for the long term, but the new policy was going to cost us a little business in the short term because some customers wouldn't like the new policies, but it was right for the long term. And within about uh, 18 months, the business completely flipped around and we had a great, great run and they're still doing really well now, what, 30 years, practically 30, 25 years later. But when I think of working on today's challenges while preparing for the future, I I think of what what we did in Argentina. You're tempted to never work on the future because the day's challenges are so hard. But if that's what you do, then you're never going to get out of the cycle. A week ago, I had a conversation with Kevin Annally, former vice president for IBM, and he shared the same idea. He said it's wise to work on today's challenges while you prepare for the future. So, so Steve, it's very interesting that you both had the same idea, the same principle. But how do you translate this for a college student or a young professional? What does it mean to prepare for the future? So a couple of things come to mind. One is really get to know yourself well and figure out where you're going to do the best, where you're going to thrive. There was a, a Harvard Business Review article a couple of years ago. They basically put on a quadrant the different types of companies. And so I think one vector on the quadrant was independent versus teamwork. And the other vector was kind of a performance is the only thing that matters and individual performance versus total company. But the interesting thing was they plotted all of these global companies. I feel like it probably had a North America bias, but there were global companies on there about, and all great companies. So they might have, you know, Walmart and IBM and Google and Facebook and Lufthansa and H&M. So all these good companies. So, I mean, the average student would probably say, I would love to work for any of those. But they were so different on the quadrants where some, it was all about teamwork. And for others, it was all about how the individual performed. It really struck me to say, you know what, 
where would you do well? If you are an individual and like to kind of say, hey, I want to get rewarded for my results. And you go into a team environment where it's just the team and the individual, you know, doesn't get rewarded. You're going to be frustrated. I have a, a good friend of mine who just went from an organization where it's kind of an individual focus, where this is your mission, you get it done. And he just transferred over to a, you're now in a team environment and it's a little bit fuzzier on, on who makes the decision and everything is collaboration. And um, there's about 10 different people that have to agree. It's driving him crazy. These are both, if I told you the comp- the organizations, you, you, you know them both, it's driving him absolutely crazy. Because, and, and I don't, I'm not even sure he realized, you know, I really am good at this and I'm really, I hate this. He knows now. So I would just go back to the original point. Um, really get to know yourself. I remember coming out of, I was good in math in high school. And I remember a couple of teachers said, oh, you would be a great accountant. You would be so good. Well, it was only because I was, I could keep, you know, I knew some numbers. Now looking back and I quickly figured out even in college, that was not for me. That would have been for me, a nightmare job. That's just not me at all. Now, other people, it's the best job in the whole world. And so I would say to that university student, really get to know yourself, where are your strengths, where are your skills, where are your desires. And then I would say, really be wise at doing due diligence on all of your options and make sure you go to places where your skills can thrive. So for me, that's, it's kind of funny as I look back on my career in university, I remember I was coming out of university and I had three different options, three different opportunities. God was very gracious and, and kind of guided me to P&G, which was an outstanding match for me. So what I was good at is what they were looking for. And I liked the environment and it just it just worked really, really well. I look back to a couple of the others and it would have been really tough. I left after two or three years, I'm sure, instead of having a 36-year career. And then also, I would just say, it's very interesting as I see people leave university. Some people keep learning and some people, they get out of university and never read a book the rest of their life. I personally don't think I was you know, super sharp coming out of school, but I kept learning. I think I kind of got better as, as time went on um, because I kept learning. I, you know, you say you're, you're the same person in a year as you are today, except for the books you read and the people you meet. And so uh, I remember on, on Fridays, I'd go to the library when I was a brand new, you know, uh, employee and just go check out the, the latest best business book and read it. Every Friday, I would do that just because I wanted to keep getting better and better and better. So I'd say, let me go back to my uh, point. I just got one more point to make on resiliency. So one, keep moving. Don't give up. Just put one step in front of the other. Two is to keep working on today's challenges while you're also thinking and doing long-term interventions in order to get out of that cycle. Let me make one quick additional point on number two. You can take everything we do and put it in a quadrant from important to not important, urgent to not urgent. And when the house is on fire, that's an important, urgent quadrant. We have to do that. And so that's a lot of times in these really crunchy situations, you've got to spend time, but you've got to go to quadrant two. That is the important, not urgent work. And the more time you can spend there, then the less fires you're going to have from quadrant one. And eventually you're always going to have fires, right? But you know, it may be that you get to spend 30 minutes this week in quadrant two, the important, not urgent work. And then next week you get to spend an hour in quadrant two. And then in a month, it's three hours. And then maybe in a year, you're spending 70% of your time in quadrant two. And then your life is in control. My, the third point I want to make today on terms of when you're in these times requiring resilience is to be, I'm a Christian, and so it's to be still and know God. 
I, uh, you know, I, I, I like to work hard. I'm, I like to be productive. And I remember I was probably 32 or 33. And I remember I was feeling frustrated that almost every night when I went to sleep, I'd look back in the day and I'd say, oh, you know, I, I, did, I did this, but I, I didn't do that. And then at the end of the week, I say, oh, I feel like I worked hard this week. I didn't waste that much time, but I did this and I didn't do that. And I had this big idea. I said, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going to just write down on a sheet of paper in my perfect week, how much time I would spend on each of these items. And, and I tried to be realistic. I, I wasn't saying I'm going to learn Chinese and uh, French and Spanish this week. I, I was not out. It was normal things like I'm going to work these number of hours. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to go on a date with my wife. I'm going to read a book whatever. And I remember I added my expectations up of myself and it was something like 220 hours in a week. Well, you've only got 168 hours. So by definition, I was not (laughs) going to ever meet my personal needs. And for me, the thing that oftentimes got shortchanged was just being quiet and praying and reading the Bible and being still before God. I would I would squeeze it in, but there's there's something different between, you know, a, saying a quick 90-second prayer and looking at a Bible verse as you're rushing out the door to go to work than to really being still before God. And so for me in this these times of resilience and it's really hard particularly for people like me who are like busy and being wanting to be productive the thing that oftentimes gives way is being still before God there's a there are a couple of verses in Psalm 127 and it basically says that God will give to you even when you sleep if you have a right relationship with him it says unless the lord builds the house the builders labor in vain unless the lord watches over the city the guards stand watch in vain in vain you rise up early and stay up late toiling for food to eat for he grants sleep to those he loves so, and so for, I always think of that as just you know he's going to take care of you if your priorities are right there's a I often think it'd be really cool if I love to-do lists if God would give us his give me my to-do list for today and I actually think he's written in the first thing in Matthew 6:33 says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well so he says look seek me first today do that first. And then numbers two through 10, I'll take care of. And then the second thing that really has hit me, it actually in the last couple of years, this has really spoke to me. In Psalm 46, God says that he's our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. So think about the times when we need to be resilient, like right now. We will not fear though the earth give way. And sometimes for a lot of people, the earth is giving away right now. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Can you imagine how tough it would be to see a mountain fall into the sea? That's how it feels for some people right now. And then later in Psalm 46, verse 10, he says, But be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so when I think of that, you know, this morning when I was still, I just kind of thought, okay, God, tell me who you're, tell me your qualities. When Moses was really frustrated with the Israelites, and he was, he was, you know, just so angry. And he was praying and he said, God, show me who you are. And God said, okay. And it says that God's goodness passed in front of Moses. So when Moses said to God, show me who you are, God said, I am good. My character is good. And so in these tough times, in these times requiring great resilience, um, I think it's really uh, most important that we just be still. We know God. We seek him first. So I would say that's keep moving. Don't give up. Work in the long term while you solve the short term problems and be still and know God. Some of the people that you know are going to listen uh, to this podcast are not used to this idea of staying still in front of God and this concept of trusting God in this 
kind of situation when you don't have a job actually or you are scared or someone died in your family i don't know why should they take into consideration this principle yeah I, you know, it's interesting, and, and I never want to be simple with someone in, in great pain. I, I don't want to just say, oh, you know, come on, I'll, you know, all you got to do is, is say a little Bible verse and everything turns out good. That you, we all know that's that's not that's not how it works. What I would say in a in a humble and gentle way is I think that what the last month or the last four months, the number one lesson for me personally is how fragile our life is how fragile the world's systems are, how, you know, one person gets this virus and within a few short months, the whole world has shut down and people are dying. It's just a shocking thing. And so for me, I'm just reminded that these, the world system is is fragile and not sufficient and is going to go away. And we're all just one breath away from eternity. And it's a reminder, what, what do we put our faith in? And I personally think there's a creator who loves us and wants to spend eternity with us, but it's our choice. He's gracious enough to say, I love you, but it's your choice. And so for us, each of us have a choice to make. And so for me, I would say for those in that are going through this tough time to just to say, you know what? Eternity is a long time and the pains and struggles that we're going through now will just last a season. And if someone, uh, a good friend of mine almost died last night in Cincinnati, I got a call from his wife as she was rushing to the hospital in the emergency room. They had a, he had a blood clot in his lung and if it had gone, and, and he, you can die from that. It was a pulmonary. This guy got up, he and his wife said they had the best church service yesterday morning, prayed together. And then he falls over, he, he stands up and hits the ground. None of us know. And so I would just say that as painful, as tough as this is, I view this as a gentle reminder from God to say what's most important. Going back to your time in Argentina and Switzerland when things were tough and you felt like you were being punched every day, did you have someone you talked about those situations? I think back to the Argentina days and there was, um, we don't have time for all of the detail, but it was just a really difficult, hard situation. And there were two guys, uh, a guy named Jeff and a guy named Tom that I respected. They knew the situation well enough to give input. And I remember uh, several times saying, here's my plan. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? I'm sure they gave me a good idea or two, but even to kind of know, hey, we're in this together. And they would encourage me And I remember telling one guy, I said, look, I don't mind dying on the hill here. I just want everybody to know the bad guys are shooting at me, you know? So, but just to have that encouragement, to know that you're not in it alone. I remember uh, the, the opposite side of that. And I remember I was in Tokyo, Japan on a Friday night at midnight doing a conference call on the business. So it was, it was midnight in Tokyo, but not midnight in Geneva in the US. But I remember the, it was, the hotel room wasn't very nice. It was dark. <laughs> Everybody's speaking Japanese. And I didn't know any Japanese. And I remember just feeling pretty lonely. I remember that feeling and uh, saying, man, this is... <laughs> This is uh, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. And that was, I think I probably had 32 or 33 years at the time. And that turned around as well. But I remember at the opposite side, feeling very lonely at that moment where, you know, my wife was back in Cincinnati planning two weddings. And I was in Tokyo and had finished a, a long week in Asia. So you're tired and the business, we had a business review and uh, the business had not come in that week the way it needed to come in and just feeling, feeling very tough. And so I would just say, it's not 
important. It's crucial that you find someone that you can uh, respect and uh, you have a lot of uh, love for and you know they have your best interest at heart. It's interesting, Yanku, the people that I can share pain with are the people that I know they love me, I trust them, I respect them, and they're not they're not working an agenda. I want someone just to listen to me and to uh kind of feel the pain with me. And and I, I want them to help me. But it's one when we're going through these tough times that require resilience. Who in your life do you have respect for and you know they're not working an agenda? And then I would also then say you be that kind of friend to somebody. Steve, we are at the end of this show. And before we leave, um, you know, if you have just one more final word, we would love to hear it. The floor is yours. So my final word would be Keep learning, work hard, spend less than you make, and seek God first. Better in Bucharest is a podcast about life experiences, leadership lessons, faith, and hope. This podcast will show you that you don't have to compromise your values to achieve happiness. 